Industrial Light and Magic, LucasArts, Skywalker Sound, Lucasfilm Animation. This is Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z. Welcome to Looking at Lucasfilm, the podcast with a different perspective on the world of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and all of the other entities that George Lucas, Kathleen Kennedy, and the rest of the team at Lucasfilm have dreamed up over the past 40 years. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Dan Z, my co-host on the show, and I are recording the show on May 1st, which is just three days out from May 4th, Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. So we got any plans, Dan? We going to do doing anything? Well, of course. Well, last year for May the 4th, I got out my old Betamax, mm-hmm. literally, and hooked it up to the TV and watched the New Hope uh, a la Beta, which is, uh, by the way, I saw it the most when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. But this year, we're actually going to uh, a Cubs-Cardinals game in Chicago. All five of us in our family. It's the first time we've all been to Wrigley. Now, unfortunately, it's not going to be Star Wars Day, but it's the closest I could get Mm -hmm. uh, to doing something fun on May the 4th. But typically, I mean, my son and I have been watching Rebels. We just finished season two, so I'm sure we'll be playing uh, some lightsabers and good things like that for sure. Very cool. And I did uh, write, I don't know if you saw, but I wrote an article for stars.com. I interviewed Blaine Hardy, who is a relief pitcher for the Detroit Tigers, and he is also a big Star Wars fan. So and they're having a big Star Wars day in, in, in Detroit against the Kansas City Royals. They're giving away a, a BB-8 beanie. So there's a fun article on stars.com about that that, that was pretty neat. Oh, that's so cool. Okay. Well, again, I work the Disney side of the street, so Attractions Magazine had a quick piece uh, over the last day or so about what the Disneyland Resort will be up to, and for one day, they're pulling out their hyperspace mountain-themed overlay of Space Mountain, so that'll be up and running on Saturday. They're also going to be doing a March of the First Order with Captain Phasma and some stormtroopers. There's going to be some special Star Wars-inspired snacks at the Galactic Grill and at the Alien Pizza Planet, which, by the way, I guess they're going to offer the Dark Side Chicken Sandwich and the Outer Rim Pasta. Sounds spicy. It does, it does. But this is going to be the very last year that uh, Star Wars Day, May the 4th be with you, uh, will be celebrated in the traditional version of Disneyland Park. Because, of course, on yeah. May 31st, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is opening. And just this week, Imagineering handed off the entire 14-acre land to Ops. Oh, wow. That's a big deal. That is a big deal. That means that, you know, now mind you... Imagineers handed off the land and then promptly walked into the show building of Rise of the Resistance to, you know, so try to get that up and running as quickly as possible. But the land now is in the hand of the cast members. There's lots of training going on and all that. And I don't know if you saw the tweet from earlier in the week, but Bob Iger, the day they handed it off, actually toured galaxy's edge and uh, i did see this i i did because anthony preston can tweeted out a joke that, oh boy this guy took a picture he's gonna get in trouble <laughs> <laughs> very true very yeah well yeah yeah i'd love to see somebody slap the you know the iphone out of bob Iger's hand but yeah the tweet specific was today i visited a galaxy far far away not a movie set but galaxy's edge at disneyland Truly out of this world, thanks Imagineering and Lucasfilm. Back on April 11th, and I know you were in pre-launch mode for Star Wars Celebration at that point, but yeah, you know, here's Bob at the Investor's Day presentation for uh, Disney Plus, the new subscription service, and 
as they're setting up talking about the Mandalorian and what they're doing with Clone Wars, they mention Episode Nine. Here's the quote, Bob, you know, at that presentation: that "The Skywalker Saga comes to an end with this ninth film." He said, "There will be other Star Wars movies, but there will be a bit of a hiatus." And you're an English teacher. Phrases like that always concern me because they're definitely it's vague. ambiguous. Yeah, it's very vague. Yeah, but it's uh, it's I'm good with it, and I know we're going to talk about that. But I'm I'm okay with this. Well, I I think the thing that that's kind of concerning, folks, is what is a bit of a hiatus. Now, Kathleen Kennedy, two days later, at Star Wars Celebration, uh, in an interview with Entertainment Weekly, said. We're going to take a couple of years off when we're taking the time to really look at where the franchise is going from the standpoint of a saga. We're not just looking at what the next three films might be or, or talking about this in terms of a trilogy. What we're looking at is what's the next decade of storytelling. I love that. Yeah, I mean, I love that approach. And also, if you take the long view here, and okay, so, you know, there's always... You know, couple is one of those those words. A couple, you know, the, a couple is two people. But, you know, the, if you get in two years, we, we could be talking three. And All right, so a two or three year gap between getting, you know, after episode nine, uh, The Rise of Skywalker debuts this December. Between Return of the Jedi and Phantom Menace, we had a 16 year gap. And then what was it? Revenge of the Sith. Between Revenge of the Sith and The Force Awakens, we had a 10 year gap. And it's not like Lucasfilm is you know, literally they're gonna, you know, hang up a gone fishing sign. You know, they've they've got Indiana Jones five in development, and yeah, that's the first thing I thought actually. Well, that is they're gonna build up the the streaming service, and they've got indie to focus on, which well, I'm finally now speaking. Of which did you see just this week? News broke that Dan Fogelman, he's one of the writers of Cars for Pixar, but but these days he's mostly celebrated for. This is us, the NBC uh, serial drama, right? Which is a great show. It is, but Dan has supposedly been hired to do a complete overhaul of Jonathan Kasdan's screenplay. July 9, thousand twenty-one release date still stands, so that means they have to start shooting next year sometime. Right, but they still got some. They still got plenty of time. But this has this been confirmed yet, or are we still just not sure? What's interesting is if you poke the folks at Lucasfilm, it's like, we are pivoting to indie. What's a little concerning is, I, I don't know if you heard anything about uh, the potential storyline for Indy 5? Uh, no, I don't know anything about oh, it. Oh, okay. Well, I don't really swim in those waters. Are you familiar with the, the stories of the Nazi gold train? No, I'm not. Supposedly, in the, the ending year of the war, there was this train that was laden with over 300 tons of gold, jewels, masterworks, paintings that have been stolen by the Nazis from all over Europe, plus advanced weaponry. And it was supposedly driven high up into the mountains, and then the tunnel was sealed with the notion that, you know, at some point in the future they'd return and reclaim all of this treasure and the Reich would rise again. And supposedly... This initially was the way they were going to go in the fine Indiana Jones tradition that among the artifacts that are on the train is is some out-of-this-world kind of artifact with supernatural power, much in the, in the style of the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy Grail. In the real world, 
uh, just in like the last five years or so, there have actually been expeditions up into the Owl Mountains in Poland where they have done the land survey work, where they do the the seismic charges and then, you know, take pictures of what's below. And evidently they've come across a couple of what uh, things that they believe are hidden train tunnels. Wow. Yeah. So this has been a legend that may be based in fact, but... Anyway, that's supposedly what Jonathan built his script around, and supposedly Dan uh, may be going another way with this project. That seems like indeed the indie ones that are the strongest are the ones that have a biblical MacGuffin. I agree. I agree. So I mean, that may be the reason that they're stepping away from this this Nazi gold idea. Anyway, uh, getting back to Kathleen and and the hiatus. So it's it's so what direction is Star Wars going to take after this hiatus? And, and Kathleen, she warns folks that we should be ready for the franchise to perhaps take a giant step backwards in time. The quote here that I thought was interesting, she said, I think this is a huge opportunity to step into the galaxy in a little bit different part of the timeline. And Kathleen got quizzed by MTV uh, yeah. at the event, and they asked her, about Knights of the Republic. Uh, did you ever get to play this online game or the role-playing game? I did more watching of it than I did playing it mm-hmm. because my, my friends had a PC, so I would go over and, and watch them do it and check it out. But I know it's got a, a massive following. In fact, some of the trailers for some of these games that you mm-hmm. can look up on YouTube are some of the coolest pieces of Star Wars storytelling you're ever going to see. Wow. Okay, because... Now, this one dates all the way back to 2003, and LucasArts put it out. And if I'm looking at the uh, sort of the logline for the game, it it takes place about 4,000 years before the founding of the Galactic Empire and features a Sith Lord called Darth Malak. That's right. And was popular enough that there there was a sequel in 2004, The Knights of the Old Republic, The Sith Lords. And when MTV asked her about this, Kathleen had a kind of an interesting response and said, yeah, we're developing something to look at, you know, but we have to be careful that Star Wars doesn't start to feel like too much, that we tried with Solo to see if we could do two movies a year and whether or not there was really an opportunity to do that sort of thing. We now feel that that's not going to work, so we're, we're backing off a little, but that doesn't mean we, we don't think about lots of stories and because that's the exciting thing about this universe. And what's especially fascinating about Knights of the Old Republic bubbling up is there's this outfit called Discord and they've launched their own game subscription service, Nitro. And just today they announced that Knights of the Old Republic and its sequel, Knights of the Old Republic Sith Lord, are going to be available to play online. And Jason Citron, the, the CEO of Discord, he's a huge Star Wars fan. Of course. He said, uh, Star Wars is a huge part of our culture. We've all grown up experiencing this galaxy through films, games, and more. And we are thrilled to be working with such a massive brand to bring these iconic games to the Nitro subscription service. And it's not just these games that Nitro is looking to make available to the folks who subscribe to their service. They're also, I guess in the weeks ahead, they'll be bringing online Star Wars Jedi Knight, Jedi Academy, Star Wars... Republic Commando, and oddly enough, Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. That's a big game. That's I mean, these are all huge ones. And then Monkey Island, Secret Monkey Island, these are ma- were massively popular, especially in the dark times. Mm-hmm. 
um, Secret of Monkey Island and Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. But that is, of course, the time period between the about a year after Return of the Jedi to when we knew they were going to start making prequels. Mm-hmm. That was pretty much what Lucasfilm was doing. And these things have massive followings. Well, it'll be interesting to see what Nitro does here. Now, mind you, this game subscription service gives you access to more than 80 select games for $10 a month. Disney Plus, the subscription streaming service that goes live on November 12th, uh, they're starting off their price point. Introductory is $6.99 a month. And so we're waiting two years, three years for our, our next Star Wars film. But, you know, thanks to John Favreau's Mandalorian, along with that uh, the spy series that's going to be built around Diego Luna's Cassian Andor character from Rogue One, as well as a continuation of the uh, Clone Wars animated series, it's not like we're going to be Star Wars free for the next two and three years. But Kathleen was talking about again it, when she was interviewed at Star Wars Celebration about who she's working with, who, who she and the, the Lucasfilm Story Trust are, are sitting down with as they look at you know, this next decade of films. And first and foremost, of course, is Ryan Johnson, the writer-director of Last Jedi. And I am intrigued by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, the showrunners of... Game of Thrones, who have to be enjoying the huge reaction the last season of, of Game of Thrones is having on HBO. But David and DB are working very, this is according to Kathleen, are working very closely with Ryan. And as soon as they finish on Game of Thrones, Ben and Off and Weiss are going to segue straight into Star Wars. I was actually on site for this interview. Were you really? Okay. Yeah, I got to listen to it. Yeah. Yeah. They're trying to be respectful of where we are. You know, we're about to cap off the Skywalker saga, and Kathleen was very careful to talk about how they were trying to be respectful of the DNA of what George created and how it's still very important to us, but she flat out admits that we know even before we started The Force Awakens that we were going to have to close this up, that this nine-part story, there was at one point it was supposed to be a 12-part story, but this last movie, Nine, is a culmination of the Star Wars saga. But it, it by no means is it the culmination of all of Star Wars. That that no. Looking to the next saga, we do, we're not looking at another trilogy. We're looking at the next ten years. So if we're going to get on the other side of this decade of solid storytelling by the Game of Thrones guys, and I may be in the minority here, but I really enjoyed the Last Jedi. So if Ryan's in the mix there. I'm a happy guy. I think The Last Jedi is a masterpiece. And, uh, you know, the the Jedi way, the mature way would be to uh, enjoy the slow burn and delay gratification. And if it does lead, as you said, to solid storytelling for a decade and beyond, because mm-hmm. we want, look what Marvel does. And Drew and I talked about this on a recent coffee with Kenobi, that they allow it to grow. And the way that they kind of funnel these things out, Star Wars is different than Marvel. Star Wars is much heavier the mythology the structure of the mythology is much heavier and a little bit more complex mm-hmm. and it needs room to breathe and mm-hmm. i think it's more powerful with space in between i know we've talked about this on previous looking at lucas films but the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy were separated by three years mm-hmm. each one was separated by three years and those turned out quite well I, I think even though we're in the streaming universe i think we can sustain i mean like you said the mandalorian uh, Kat, the Cassian series that Alan Tudyk's going to be in reprising K2SO, Clone Wars, and who knows what else. I think we're going to be in good shape. I wouldn't mind a little bit of a breather if, it, as you said, means more solid storytelling for a long time. But we're having this conversation 
as Endgame is out there sucking up all of the money on the planet and driving the Disney stock to record highs. And when you're in the corner office at a, a studio like Disney, invariably in the years that follow, people will pull out that ridiculous yardstick and go, oh yeah, we had a good year, but nothing compared to the year we we had with Endgame. And the way the financial press works is that they build you up to tear you down. So I, I can virtually guarantee you that this time next year, Dan, will be, you know, it's like, oh, well, yeah, the Black Widow movie's out and it was fine, but it didn't do Endgame numbers. Oh, that's what they'll say about episode nine too. Oh, no, no absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's just, it, it's hard in that sort of universe, understanding what's coming to go, well, look, the patient thing here is to give Star Wars some breathing space, get people hungry for it again, and then to come back. But like I said, in the meantime, we have Indy 5, and just today, Disney Hollywood Studios was having a a huge parade to celebrate the 30th anniversary of its grand opening way back in uh, 89, and one of the components of this parade was, was a unit that celebrated the Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular. As they're doing the color commentary on this parade, one of the things they mentioned is that there's a number of the folks who work on the Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular who actually drove up to Atlanta while they were shooting Endgame there and did stunt work in that film. Oh, wow. Yeah, which I, I thought was an interesting little bend in the story. But thinking back to 89, I remember... When they, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas showed up at the opening of what was then Disney MGM Studios theme park, and they showed us two scenes from the Epic Stunt Spectacular because the show was was only in technical rehearsals at the point. It wouldn't actually, the full blown version wouldn't open until late summer, early fall of the same year, and so all George could really talk about was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, which would open in theaters just a few weeks after that. And when Dan and I get back from our break, we're going to talk in depth about the third film in the indie series and, oddly enough, the ripple effects that continue on to what they're doing with Five. Before we get to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, we really do need to talk about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, largely because a lot of the reason that Last Crusade wound up the way that it did was that Spielberg felt like he really had to make it up to moviegoers who were totally bummed out by Temple of Doom. And Dan, where do you put Temple of Doom in your indie pile, so to speak? You know, is it favorite, least favorite one? Well, my favorite is also my favorite movie of all time, Raiders of the Lost Ark. But mm-hmm. Temple of Doom, I actually put last. Mm-hmm. And it's and before I was a dad, mm-hmm. I would have put it probably second. Mm-hmm. But then now that I watch it now, it's so dark and the stuff with the kids. And it's just a little bit harder for me to digest things like that now that I have boys of my own. I, I, I like it. Mm-hmm. And I certainly appreciate it. But I think the narrative of it's uh, the most flimsy of all of them. If Spielberg had had his way, Indy 2 would have been very different. He wanted, let's do that again. Let's bring back Karen Allen to be Marion Ravenwood. And they spent so much time talking about Marion's dad, Abner. It's like, let's bring him in. Let's make him part of the story. But but George Lucas, I mean, really, Indiana Jones, the whole Indiana Jones series came out of the, the fact that what these guys really wanted to do was make a James Bond movie. But, you know, they That's figured, right. nah, 
you know, the Broccoli family will never let us have access to the character. And so, but in George's heart, Indy was always their response to, to Bond. So the Bond rules applied to Indy. So that meant every time there was a new Indiana Jones movie, Indy would have to have a new girl in much the same way that, you know, there's always a new Bond girl. Also, this is on the heels of Empire coming out in 1980 and how strongly people had responded to a darker story. And so it was like, well, let's, let's do that as well. And here's Lawrence Kasdan, who had written the screenplay for the original Raiders, and, and George is spitballing what he wants in the movie. And I, I want child slaves, and I want a guy who gets his heart ripped out of his chest. And Kasdan was like, he felt, he just flat out said, this is a mistake. And in fact, he felt so strong that he refused to write the script for Indy 2, which is how uh, William Huck and Gloria Katz got the gig. By the way, Dan, at this point, it's called Indiana Jones and the Temple of Death rather than Temple of Doom. Heartwarming. You, well, oh, I, no, that I, was a pun. I didn't even mean to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but again, you know, for me, all I could think of is if I had just been smart enough when, I, when my friend was working at that movie theater and he was taking down his Revenge of the Sith poster because they had sent him oh. the Return of the Sith poster, you know, yeah. but straight into the trash it went. It just hmm. so I, I wonder if there's actually anything out there the, with, with Indiana Jones Temple of Death on it. Anyway, I, the other thing that's fascinating is that there's long been this story that one of the reasons that Temple of Doom is as dark as it is is that both Spielberg and Lucas were in bad places in their personal lives at the same point. I guess Spielberg had divorced Amy Irving, and I, I'm blanking the name of the, the, the woman, the music executive that he'd been dating for three years, but I guess they broke up just before Temple of Doom started shooting. And of course, George was in the middle of his divorce from Marsha, and Lucas actually admitted this in an interview that he did with Empire Magazine. He said the, the reason that Temple of Doom wound up being so dark and depressing was I was going through a divorce, and Stephen had just broken up, and we were not in a good mood. So we decided to do something a little more edgy, it ended up darker than it we thought it would once we got out of our, out of our bad moves, moods, which went on for a, a year or two. We kind of looked at it and went, hmm, they, we certainly took that to the extreme. As you were mentioning, you know, speaking of the extreme, it's just sort of like, when you think about that scene in the movie where Mola Ram uh, pulls the still-being heart out of the guy's chest and then they lower him into the, the pools of lava to burn alive and... If you're somebody buying movie tickets in 1984, and this is Steven Spielberg, the guy who just made E.T., and of course I could take the kids to see this. There was such an uproar after the movie came out because this was a PG-rated movie, and so many of the scenes in this were so intense and so dark that the um, American Motion Picture Association, or excuse me, the Motion Picture Association of America actually created a brand new ratings category just as the result of this movie, the PG-13. Spielberg was getting hate mail. So many people wrote to him about, You're the, you were supposed to see the next Walt Disney. You know, I, I, I trusted you. I took my family to see this movie, and my kids are having nightmares. And so as they began developing Indy 3 in the initial story work in late 84, early 85, Spielberg was adamant. It's like, look, the next installment, we have to go back 
to Raiders. We have to go back to that style. We have to win back the trust of the audience. And George wanted to go in an entirely different direction. He wanted to do basically a Haunted Mansion movie. Have you ever heard about this? I have, and I'm extremely glad it didn't happen. I want to say the stuff that Diane Thomas wrote. She, by the way, folks, you you probably know her best from the script that she wrote for the Robert Zemeckis movie, Romancing the Stone. It was Indy in a Scottish castle battling a vengeful spirit, and it was it was strong enough that they didn't entirely throw the script away. In fact, for a number of iterations of the project going forward, they used it as the sort of opening scene, like the Club Obi-Wan scene or the going after the golden idol sequence in Raiders. But they just collapsed it down to sort of a highlight reel of all of the great stuff that Diane had done. But but again, from Spielberg's side of the fence, it's like, no, 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 this is filled with poltergeist-like effects and monsters, and I'm going to get more hate mail. And it's like, no, 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 let, let's go another way. And so they spend a number of years. And again, remember, as you, you mentioned, Dan, that typically they've been sort of, you know, they've been a three-year breathing space between all the Star Wars movies, and that was the original plan with Indy 3 that we had seen the original Indiana Jones come out in 80, or Raiders come out in 81, Temple of Doom in 84, and so we were going to see in 87, Indy 3. And they spent a lot of time developing scripts, keying off of the Monkey King, the Monkey God legend. The problem was that most of these stories were set in Africa, or most of the versions of the, these stories were set in Africa. And and Spielberg, in addition to getting complaints about how dark Temple of Doom was, he also got a lot of mail from folks from of Indian descent who were, who were really upset about the way their culture had been depicted in uh, Indy 2. So Spielberg was looking at the scenes that were being written for the African tribesmen and figuring, oh no. And especially as this script is being prepared. Steven's also ramping up the color purple, you know, which, which he directed with Whoopi Goldberg. And, and it was just one of these things where it's like, I, you know, we can't, I can't make that movie and, and make a movie that's full of stereotypical African tribes. And we, we have to do better. And so they're fumbling. They can't get a handle on what the script is about. Again, no strong story hook has emerged, but in the same window of time, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, Harrison Ford all become fathers. And as you know, having just come back from coaching your son's T-ball game tonight, was that correct? Yeah, yeah. But you know, I mean, you know, that when I talk with folks who are about to become parents, it's it's one of these things where it's like you, you really don't understand. They're, they, you step through a doorway when you have a child and you leave yeah. your old life behind. And it so fundamentally changes your worldview and your priorities that evidently George and Harrison and, and Stephen were sitting around talking about how their lives had changed. And, you know, when you look at Indiana Jones and what a conundrum this guy is. I mean, he's this, this academic whiz. He's an intrepid adventurer. He's a shameless ladies' man. Who could have raised a guy like that? Suddenly it's like, ooh, who is Indy's dad? George Lucas, again, came at it from a different point of view. I, I, did you ever see the, the movie or the TV show, The, the Paper Chase? With, no. With John Houseman? Uh, a wonderful actor, definitely worth chasing out, but he's a very stern, very reserved 
a stodgy gentleman and and you know wonderful performer also a contemporary of orson welles i worked with him on the mercury theater back in the the, the 1930s and the 40s on the other hand people are wondering you know it's like look we started this off because we wanted to make a james bond movie so look if indy's father is sean connery you know so there, there's only one guy for this job and harrison ford initially is against the idea not because he doesn't think that sean connery is a wonderful actor or or, or an inspired choice but it's just sean's only 12 years older than than harrison it was like can we get away with that that my dad is only 12 years older than i am but he got over that to get the first pass of the script to Connery and he almost immediately pushes back because it's I don't want to play a frail old man I want to be vital I'm the dad of this adventurer and so the script gets rewritten dozens upon dozens of times in fact in Raiders the search for the Ark of the Covenant the Ark of the Covenant is it, as you mentioned it's a really good strong MacGuffin it, it constantly drives the story forward where in Last Crusade, the Grail, somewhat weak MacGuffin, but the fun of the movie is watching Ford and Connery interact with one another. Because he, the dad is kind of his own Holy Grail. Like, Indy, that's Indy, metaphorically speaking. That's it, exactly. I love that you picked up on that. In fact, there's that, that lovely moment at the end where, at the edge of that chasm, and Indy, I've, you know, yeah. he can almost reach for, you almost get it, it's, and the father... Over the course of the film, Henry Sr. has begun to appreciate and you know, realize how much he loves his son. And it's like, let it go. It's the only time he calls him Indiana, too. It's a wonderful moment. And when you think about it, when, when this was all about trying to return to the form for Raiders, when it finally came out in May of 89, it was this smash hit. And largely because people, it's like, now this is more like it. This is what I go to see an Indiana Jones movie to see. And you know, so when's the next one coming out? that they start working on a story. But now it now it's more complicated because it's like people really do want to see uh, Henry Sr. and Henry Jr. back together, but there has to be a logical story-driven moment for that to happen. The story that Jeb Stewart comes up with in 1993 seems to solve the problem. This film, had it been made, would have been called Indiana Jones and the Saucer Men. It has, again, your, your standard Indiana Jones Act 1 pre-credit opening where you have a different adventure before the film proper begins. But this is where we get to meet Dr. Elaine McGregor. She's a linguist that Indy, as he's going to a dig upriver, I want to say, in South America, and they're investigating a jungle temple. And by the time that the the pre-credit scenes is done, Indy is smitten with this confident brunette, and these two rough-edged academics fall in love. And so, as we the story proper starts back stateside, uh, Indy and Elaine are about to tie the knot. And what was genuinely great about the next twenty or so pages of the movie is all of Indy's friends and family have come back to Hartford, Connecticut to be here on the Yale campus for the wedding. So Marion Ravenwood has come back, and Willie Scott has come back, and Short Round is the driver of Indy's car, of course, and Salah's his best man. And here's Dr. Henry Sr. for this day that he never thought it would happen, that 
his son's about to get married. And but what happens is on uh, literally the moment the wedding is is happening, that Elaine arrives at the church and there at the steps of the church is a government vehicle and a stern looking government official. Elaine looks at the official and looks at the car and looks at Indy at the end of the aisle in the church and runs down the steps, climbs in the car and drives off. The next scene of the movie is it's Marion and Willie who've taken Indy out to a bar to commiserate because he'd been left at the altar. And they're sitting there hammering drinks back with him and he was never you know, she was never good enough for you. And you know, that uh and later back at the house, you know, you have Henry comforting his, you know, his humiliated son, but at the same time asking questions you only had known this woman for weeks. You know, why would you think to marry her? Did you really know her? And Indy, because he doesn't know her, he, he starts using his skills to find out where she went. And it turns out the government had taken her off to Los Alamos, which, you know, again, this is late 40s, early 50s now. And Indy sneaks onto the base. And this is where the Trinity nuclear tests are, are being held. Initially, Indy gets in trouble because he's sneaking onto a nuclear base, but, but Elaine vouches for him. And so why are we here? Where the film takes a hard left turn is that Come, I'll show you. And Elaine takes Indy to the crash. I'm blanking the name of the town, famous in Nevada for the the uh, like the, Area Fifty One that area. Well, see, the it, Area Fifty One gets created after this point in American history, but it's the famous the saucer crash that made the papers, and then the next day the Air Force it's a weather balloon. But this is where the story starts. And in fact, the MacGuffin this time around isn't something, a religious object like the Holy Grail or the Ark of the Covenant. It's this stone pillar of, uh, with these markings on it that it seems to be doing some sort of a countdown. It's evidently the drive of whatever the saucer was. The weird thing is if you, you hold it next to a light bulb, the light bulb lights, and it, it immense great power. And the thing is that Indy and Elaine, from all of their knowledge of working with temples and that sort of thing, are sort of work out that it's a countdown, that at some point this thing is going to blow up. And they have to figure out how to get it back to the saucer men. And of course, they're being chased not only by the American Air Force, but also Soviets who want to get their hands on it. And anybody who's seen Indiana Jones in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull there's familiar elements. You know, we got a wedding in that movie, but at the end, rather than the beginning, secret army bases and, and, and that sort of thing. Spielberg was actually the one who kept sort of hitting the brakes on this film. And that was largely because he was like, look, I've, I've done Aliens. I, I did Close Encounters. I did E.T. I don't know if I want to do bad 1950s Aliens. And eventually it took years to sort of get him around to the point of, okay, I'm willing to make this movie. And that was largely because George convinced him. It's like, look, they're not aliens. They're interdimensional beings. So you're not repeating yourself. This is an entirely different animal. By the time to start shooting Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, Sean Connery has announced his retirement. This is 2006 or thereabouts. And as they were about to begin production in 2007, he puts out a formal statement that he would not be appearing in the fourth Indiana Jones film. As he, he put it, retirement is just too much damn fun. That was the cover story, though. 
the hard reality is that Spielberg took the revised script to Connery, and at this point, they'd moved the wedding to the end, and there was so little for Henry Jones Sr. to do in the movie. Well, this is what Connery said in an interview. I spoke with Spielberg, and it didn't work out. It was just not that generous a part, not worth getting back into harness and so forth. And and they had taken the story in a different line anyway. So the, the father of Indy was kind of really not that important. I suggested they kill him off in the movie. That way it would be taken care of better. And that in the end is, is what happened. But maybe if they had managed to get the Jeb Stewart thing out of the blocks earlier, we would have gotten that. I mean, as it was, I mean, think about how much fun it was when, when we saw Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and when we got Karen Allen back. Oh, yeah. I, lo- I love it. If we'd gotten John Rice davies back, they invited him to also be in at the end of the film. In the wedding, yeah. But he yeah. thought that was too, a little too small. Yeah. Not in a negative way, more like, well, you know, really, that's all you got for me? I don't blame him. No, I get that. But I just, I would have loved to have seen the scene of, of Harrison and Karen Allen and Kate Capshaw. The three of them in a bar commiserating. And if you look back over the history, there were so many moments where it was either Spielberg or Lucas that tapped the brakes. And that's why, even now, we're still... Jonathan Kasdan is supposedly walking away from writing the film, and Dan Fogelman is coming in. And By the way, Dan, if you, I don't know if you've ever read the Frank Darabont version of Kingdom of the Christmas. Yeah, when you and I... The very first episode you and I ever did, we talked about it. It's an amazing script. That has my favorite Indiana Jones gag of all time. They're walking through the jungle. They're getting closer to the actual, you know, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and a snake comes out of a tree, and Marion immediately, oh, Indy's going to lose it here, and Indy's like, just sort of puts a hand on it, pulls it out of the tree, and gently drops it on the ground, and go, Marion, I got over my fear of snakes years ago. And earlier in the movie, they sort of had alluded to the fact that the effect of the the proximity of the, the Crystal Skull is the kingdom of the crystal skull is that animals were were getting larger i mean they were seeing butterflies that were like a foot across and that sort of thing and it so at this point indy comes around a bend and there's an anaconda that's 30 or 40 feet long that just sort of opens its mouth and swallows indy whole and then you know they we're just sort back of, in business yeah then they just smash cut to they're back at the camp and clearly they've killed the snake gotten indy out and he's just sitting by the fireside traumatized shaking and it's like he's right back to to his snake trauma so one of those scenes i'd love to have seen shot at some point but i guess now folks we'll just have to wait till 2021 to see what they decide they're going to do with indy 5 hopefully it'll be entertaining enough that it'll hold us till we start seeing those star wars films by the guy the game of Thrones guys i'm optimistic you gotta be you gotta be but anyway while we're waiting dan is there something else we could be listening to? Something perhaps that, that you and the Coffee with Kenobi crew are up to? Well, for sure, yeah. Each and every week, uh, you can find me on Coffee with Kenobi. Anywhere you listen to podcasts this week, as I mentioned earlier, our own Drew Taylor joins me. We talk a lot about uh, his history covering Star Wars as a fan as well. And then we compare a little bit of the Lucasfilm franchise to what's going on with Marvel and, and have a ton of fun doing so. I mean, he's a, he's a great guy and very entertaining. <laughs> he's very, very entertaining. entertaining. Yes. Yep. 
well, speaking of which, though, that, that I also do a show with Drew, we do fine-tuning. That covers ink animation news and history. Uh, also do Disney Dish with Luntesta, which goes for the theme parks. Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse, where we talk about the Universal Parks and Resorts. We also have Marvel Us Disney. And then I Want That with Michelle Valladolid, where we talk merch. If you get out over to iTunes and rate and recommend those shows, uh, you can head over to Bandcamp and subscribe and support these shows. We'll be back soon, folks. Till then, take care. Thank you for listening to Looking at Lucasfilm with Jim Hill and Dan Z, one of many great podcasts on the Jim Hill Media Network.